Ever since the Occupy movement popularized the concept of the 99% versus the 1%, inequality has been a fixture in American politics. Much of the debate has centered around income inequality, but perhaps more insidious is the decline in social mobility. It's a problem that cuts right to the core of Horatio Alger's American dream. Can anyone, no matter their economic or social background, still get ahead in America through hard work? Hello and welcome to Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and our guest today is HKS professor Robert Putnam, whose latest book, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, seeks to put an answer to that question. Professor Putnam, thanks for joining us. Great pleasure. So uh, before we get into answering that question, uh, I'm curious what drew you to this particular subject? Two related things. Um, first of all, an undergraduate in my undergraduate seminar about uh, eight years ago came from a modest background herself. She was doing a paper, she was doing a paper, like all kids in the class were doing a paper. We had talked in the class about how there was rising volunteerism among young people. And she said, first of all in class and then to me, doesn't sound right. wasn't true of my, the kids that I went to high school with. I went to a really quite modest high school in a working class town in, on the West Coast. And they weren't volunteering more. I think this is just the kind of kids who come to Harvard who are volunteering more. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought she was probably wrong, but I thought it was a good topic for a paper. So we found her some data. And lo and behold, she found out that there was a gap between volunteering. Volunteering had been rising among kids who were headed to college and not rising, indeed falling, among kids who weren't headed to college. Mm-hmm. And she was probably right that most of the rise in volunteering was due to um, resume padding. Mm-hmm. So you could get into Harvard, you could say you'd volunteered for whatever. Right. You know, Habitat for Humanity or whatever. Um, and sh- she thought that, she and I both thought it was an interesting topic, so she wrote her senior thesis on it. And she began looking beyond volunteering. And both she and I were shocked that you could see the same pattern. It's, it looks like a scissors if you graph it. That is, volunteering or going to church is up for kids coming from high school, from college-educated backgrounds. That is, kids whose parents went to graduate from college. That's the upper third of American society. Mm-hmm. They were doing better and better, um, whereas kids coming from the lower third of American society, that is, their parents had not got past high school, they're on these same measures, volunteering or church attendance or or um, other forms of involvement, were going down. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty stunning, and it was actually, a I, because I certainly didn't expect that. I, at the, toward the end of her senior year, was she was finishing off the thesis, I said to her, this, I, this is probably a really interesting finding. It's probably just another example of racial differences in America. Mm-hmm. It must be that these are most of the upper class kids, upper third kids are probably white kids and most of the lower third kids are probably non-white and probably we're just seeing another aspect of racial differences. And so we, we thought we'd run the numbers to see and it was, it turned out I was again wrong. She, it, it had, this was not about race at all. You could see the same scissors gap if you looked only at white kids. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a very interesting paper and I told her she ought to publish it, but she decided she wanted to do other things. She's she went off to Wharton Business School and is now a, an executive. And so we put it on the list of things that were interesting to talk about, that, you know, maybe we'd look take a look at. But gradually, over the last three or four years, my team has focused more and more closely on this issue. And it turned out we had just uncovered a corner of a much larger phenomenon, which was not just about volunteering at all, but you could see these same growing 
gaps between what loosely I'm going to call them rich kids and poor kids, but I'm not talking about Bill Gates's kids, and I'm not talking about homeless kids. I'm talking about my grandchildren as compared to kids who are who are you know the same kind of kids, but they come from less mm-hmm. well-educated homes. Um, you can see these graphs in how much time parents spend with their kids, up for middle class, upper middle class kids, down for working class kids. You can see it in how much money their parents spend on, you know, computer games or summer camp or violin lessons, up mm-hmm. for, up for uh, upper middle class kids, down for working class kids. You can see it in extracurricular activities, up for sure. uh, kids like my grandchildren, and, and down for working class kids. Uh, you can see it in obesity. Obesity. There is an adolescent obesity epidemic, but it was over 15 years ago among middle class kids. Middle class kids are now less obese than they were 15 years ago. By upper middle class, I mean just college educate, kids coming from college educa- educated homes. But the obesity epidemic is raging out of control among kids coming from poor backgrounds. It's too. Mm-hmm. It's also true for test scores. Test scores are up for kids coming from college educated homes and down from kids coming from working-class homes. And when you add all that up, what it means is that um, increasingly kids like, like my own grandchildren are poised for success. I mean, they've, they, more than ever before, they've got support. They've got financial and emotional and cultural and social mm-hmm. support from their families and their neighborhoods and their churches and their, uh, you know, schools. But at the same time, more than ever before, kids coming from working class backgrounds don't have that. Most of them don't even have two parents. Most of them, I'm talking about white kids from college, from high school educated homes, um, as well as non-white kids. Most of them don't have two parents. So they're they're increasingly isolated from everything, from their parents, from their churches, from their community organizations, from their church, from their schools, from mm-hmm. athletics, from, and that means that as these kids move now on in their life the the college the kids coming from college educated homes are very likely to complete college the kids coming from non-college educated homes are very likely not to even go to college or much less complete complete college complete college so what that means is that these going forward we're on the brink of a situation which is quite unlike America's past, and that is becoming a caste society, in which the most important decision you make is choosing your parents. And if you choose your parents wisely, as my grandchildren did, they chose great parents and and, and actually did (laughs) not not such a bad job on grandparents, Um, then you're dressed, you're fine, you're you're fixed for life. Mm And, and I'm proud of my grandchildren. I'm not objecting to that. They, they work hard, but they sure. have they made the right decision about who they chose. But there are other kids out there who are just as talented and just as hardworking, but made one wrong decision. Right. On the day that parents were being chosen, they were absent. Or they said, I don't know, I don't care. Give me whatever you've got there. And they ended up with a less well-educated parent from lower in the hierarchy. And that that fundamental picture that I've described, which is of an emerging caste system, we're not there yet, but... It is so contrary to the core idea of America. I mean, this is, you know, go back to the very beginning. All men are created equal. We didn't, uh, that's, that, this is not that. It seems like the biggest contrast in your book um, is that this system has emerged, but it wasn't that way back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering, is, 
did the stats lay that out, or is that just because we kind of have rose-colored glasses when we're looking at the past? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I have two answers to that. Partly, in this book, there are lots of graphs and charts, which shows it didn't used to be this way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be this way. Uh, I'm not trying to paint the 1950s or 1960s as a golden age. There were lots of things that were not right in America that have gotten better since then. I mean, we're, we're, we're less uh, discriminatory, discriminatory as a country towards, towards um, ethnic minorities than we were when I was growing up. I grew up in the 50s in a small town in, in Ohio. Um, and there's less racism now than there was then. There's certainly much more opportunity for women than there was then. So we've made big progress as a society. But mm-hmm. in the particular domain of class um, gaps, um, there's been a really big de- deterioration, and you can see that in the data. As I, I begin this book, the first chapter of the book is a story of my own hometown. Right. Um, small town. Um, Port Clinton? Port Clinton, Ohio, on Lake mm-hmm. Erie. Uh, when I was growing up there, um, and, and this is not Golden Glow Effect. We've gone back and looked at the data really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it wasn't a very rich place. It wasn't a very poor place. It was pretty, people were m- pretty much middle of the road of my college classmates' parents. Almost half had not graduated from high school, so this is not a, a particularly um, affluent or well-educated place. Um, but there were not big class differences at all. Pe- people were class differences were actually surprisingly invisible to kids mm-hmm. and we know that because we've now done a complete survey of all of my high school classmates uh, uh, all of my um, classmates who are still alive and um, uh, and you can see they class was not a big religion mattered a little bit but class did not matter to kids at all and that was also true in how what they achieved in the rest of their lives because now their lives are you know they've they've had their their life trajectory mm-hmm. traced out mostly and we can see about 80% of all the kids in my high school class did better than their parents 80% did and 20% didn't do necessarily better but didn't do worse mm-hmm. and kids who came from relatively well educated or affluent homes didn't do better than kids coming from poor homes the best example of that from my own high school is um, there it was it's was an almost all white town but there were two black kids in my class both came from homes where Neither of their parents, none of their parents, had gotten beyond third grade, and they'd gone. Their parents had gone to Jim Crow schools in the South, so wow. their parents were barely literate. Mm-hmm. Both of these kids graduated from high school. That's a big deal. You go to from sure. from illiterate parents to high school graduation in one generation. That's great. Both of them also went to college. Even better. Both of them also graduated from college. Not only that, both of them also went to graduate school. <laughs> wow. Not only that, both of them have graduate degrees. So if you think about the upward mobility. From in one generation, from illiterate, basically peasant parents, hardworking, mm-hmm. and they, they were terrific parents, but they were not well educated. In one generation, to go from that to having a graduate degree, that's amazing upward mobility. They faced racial discrimination. I'm not saying they didn't, but in class terms, that period, and I'm now coming out of the Port Clinton story and talking about America, that mm-hmm. period was a period of rather high upward mobility. So, it, one of the statistics that I, I that struck out to me um, when I was reading the book was that uh, uh, in Port Clinton in particular, um, you cited that statistic about something like 80% getting more educational uh, achievement than their parents, but that 
the current generation, on average, they mean, no, no, no advancement whatsoever. We were, we, my years, my, my generation in Port Clinton were on a very fast upward escalator, and mm-hmm. the escalator came to a, an abrupt halt for our kids. I mean, mm-hmm. my kids happened to do pretty well, but they, sure. but on it's, average, the next generation didn't experience any upward mobility, and the current generation in Port Clinton, this is the other point about Port Clinton, which is frightening, is that now in Port Clinton, there is a substantial class cleavage among the current, among the high school graduates or, or, or recent graduates right now. Mm-hmm. And if you if you go to Port Clinton High School now, this little high school, 150 people in my graduating class, still about the same size. If you go there now, in the parking lot, you can see parked right next to each other in the parking lot, BMW convertibles who are driven by kids whose parents are living in mansions along the lakefront mm-hmm. at parked next to jalopies, junkers, in which kids are living because they don't have it, they're homeless. And that, it's just incredible to think how, within this little town, how much social, social economic distance there has been created. There's a road coming out of Port Clinton called East Harbor Road. If you drive down East Harbor Road and look to the left, that census tract along the lake, mansions, has zero child poverty. If mm-hmm. you look to the right of the same road, that census tract has 50% child poverty in a little wow. town. And that captures what's happening in America, this increasing class segregation. Mm-hmm. And if you grow up on one side of that road with relatively well-off parents, you're, you know, you're likely to go to some great university. If you grow up on the wrong side of that road, you're lucky if you graduate from high school. A big difference. So uh, I guess the obvious question is, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect storm. Um, at the beginning of the storm is, of course, what's happened economically to the parents. These, the the long economic stagnation that's affected the middle and lower half of American society has its effects on these kids. These kids are what you get when the parental generation have no make no economic progress for half a century. And that's true of the of the parents and grandparents, even of the of the of the of the poor kids. I repeat, when I say poor, don't think, you know, ghetto of, of, of uh, Los Angeles or of New York. Think just kids not coming from high school, from, you know, think kids of all races whose parents didn't get past high school. Um, so part of it in the background is this economic stagnation. Part of it in the background, an important part, is that we, are become, we have become a more class-segregated society in terms of where we live, we're less likely to live near people who are, you know, have a different income or a different education level than we are. We're we're a less we're more economically segregated in where we live, in where we go to school. We're less likely to go with kids go to school with kids who have a different kind of social background than us. In terms of whom we marry, it's amazing actually. Interclass marriage has been falling over the last fifty years. So, we are becoming in many ways physically two separate societies, and that mm-hmm. feeds through into the lives of kids. There are other things that have happened that are a consequence of, of those two macro trends. Um, uh, the norm of, of having kids only in a committed, relatively permanent relationship, that is marriage, has collapsed among working class people of all races. This is, again, not a racial thing. So most kids born to um, college, high school educated moms in America today, I repeat, most kids, including most kids born to white high school 
graduates uh, in America are living from birth in a single parent family. So that mm -hmm. means these th this this collapse of the white working and, and non white working class families means that kids are starting off behind the eight ball before they've been. You know, I'm not making a moral right. point here about this. I'm making a point that it's just easier to you do better if you've got two loving parents than if you don't have two loving parents. Mm -hmm. You only have one or less. So that change is an important part of it. That's a I don't know whether you call that a, a normative change or an ethical change or just a sociological change, but that's part of it. Um, a part of it has to do with the fact that we know a lot more now about child development. We know that the early years matter, and so. We know that reading to your kids is a big, important deal, and college-educated parents have really taken on that, that on board, and so they're much more likely to spend time in, in reading and interacting with their kids, much more than middle-class parents used to, much more than my parents did. Mm -hmm. But working-class parents, partly because there's only one of them usually in a family and partly because they've got other things on their mind, aren't not reading as much to their kids. So the average college kid from college educated homes today gets an hour more time interacting with mom or dad in an in intellectually stimulating way that is reading or or going to hmm. the zoo or whatever an hour and what we know from the most recent brain studies studies of childhood brain development i mean physiological these are you know serious scientists is that's devastating to poor kids cuz social this isolation early before the kids are even speaking has a huge negative effect. So that's another part of the change. As I say, in the background, you can see these big macroeconomic and sociological changes, but then the, it comes down to individual kids. Um, it's heartbreaking, actually. Mm -hmm. the, the book, as you know, has a lot of stories of individual kids. It's not just data. Mm -hmm. And I personally was actually shocked when we did this research, talking to, the, getting the life stories of rich kids and poor kids. It's just it's unspeakable the conditions that these many of these poor kids are living in. And I repeat, I'm not talking about the poorest of the poor. Right. I'm just talking about kids who are coming from, you know, right. sli slightly below the middle backgrounds. So if you've seen the separation along the lines of education, is education the answer to this? Or it seems like these are problems which go much deeper than just education. Yeah, they do. Um, as you listen to the public conversation about inequality now, and there is Thank goodness there's an increase in conversation about this. Pe uh, presidential candidates from both particular both parties are now make, putting a big, big emphasis on this opportunity gap, and that's a mm -hmm. big deal. It's my When we began this project, my highest hope was to push this issue of the opportunity gap higher up the national agenda, and I don't say we succeeded, but that's happened, and that's great. But in that conversation, people often frame this as a school's problem. The schools have somehow screwed up and caused this problem, and... That's, Americans have a bad habit of blaming schools for problems that the rest of us can't fix. And so we know from our research this is almost not at all a school's problem. That is, schools did very little to cause this problem. You could say schools didn't, enough, didn't do enough to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. that, that is, they've not done, but they've not been able to kind of put, put every, to compensate for the other things that are happening in these kids' lives. And maybe the prop, maybe the solution, maybe there are things we can do in schools and in the educational system to improve the problem. That's certainly possible. But I, it's just not true to say that this is basically something that the schools did by tracking or by mm -hmm. poor teaching or whatever. It's a, it's a problem that it, you look around us. We're the ones who've caused this problem. We are no longer looking out for other people's kids as much as we used to. And I mean that in a very 
literal sense. So what are some proactive steps that could be taken to counteract it? Well, I think we should do more to try to, more in the economy to try to make sure that it's not, that um, less well-off, less well-educated people have a decent shot at a at a living wage. And so there are things to be done on the income inequality front mm-hmm. that maybe will make it easier for those people to to get married and stay married and and have kids in a living in a in a in a stable partnership um there's certainly a lot we can do with respect to early childhood education um and uh, president obama and and other leaders have talked now about that and this is becoming i hope not necessarily a partisan divide we know that early childhood education makes a big and really early not just just pre-k but going back really early Mm um i think there are proven programs that can help by coaching single moms to be more productive mothers. They, wa- they want to be mothers. It's not like these, they're evil and they don't want to help their kids. Of course they do, but they, they're coming from backgrounds in which they don't have a clue about the how, how to you know, really help boost their kids. So there's sure. parenting problems we can do. There are things we can do in our schools, especially by um, compensatory financing. Poor Kids are increasingly concentrated in poor schools. Um, teaching in a poor school is not a pleasant thing to do because you're most much of the time in a poor school. What you're doing is worrying about gang violence and so on. And so, these people are doing the people. I mean, teachers who are working in those districts need to be rewarded more so we can get more of our best teachers in mm-hmm. to work in those poor schools. Um, we we need to do more in our neighborhoods, in our churches. There are lots of things, powerful sources of support um, that used to be available to kids um, uh, just from their neighbors mm-hmm. and their church fellow church members and so on no longer are available to poor kids. Mm-hmm. The, the bigger picture is that I think that actually there are, there are a half dozen, maybe more particular specific policy suggestions in the book, and I think, and that are proven. We know that they would work if we did them mm-hmm. more, if we generalized them more nationally. I don't think this is so much a case of a problem that we don't have a solution for. I think it's here's the larger issue, and it's bound up with the title of the book, Our Kids. When I was growing up in Port Clinton, and when my parents used the expression, Our Kids, we've got to do something for our kids. Um, We've got to, you know, raise the taxes so or have have a bond issue so we have a better swimming pool or a French department or whatever. By our kids, they did not mean my sister and me. They meant all the kids here in Port Clinton. They meant all the kids were in Port Clinton. They were mm-hmm. all part of our kids here in this community. But over the course of the last thirty or forty years, in measurable ways, our sense of we who we're responsible for has shrunk, shriveled. So that now when people talk about our kids, they mean their own biological kids. Right. And so in the book, and we talk about poor kids from Port Clinton. David is the pseudonym we use for one of the kids. Mary Sue is another. In an earlier era, other people in Port Clinton would have thought of David and Mary Sue as being one of our kids. Maybe their parents weren't such great people or were having difficult times, but but Mary Sue and David were our kids. Mm-hmm. If you go back to Port Clinton now, these these kids, nobody thinks of David and Mary Sue as one of their kids. They think they're somebody else's kids and let them let somebody else worry about them. And that's, first of all, it's very economically dumb because by ignoring Mary Sue and David, the numbers, uh, their numbers are in the book. It's going to be hugely costly mm-hmm. to have this whole generation, to forego the talents 
of a huge right. gener I mean of enormous generation of of Mary Sue's and Davids. Um, it's bad for our democracy uh, because Mary Sue and David are not great are not going to be great citizens. They're so poorly connected and plugged in that they're not going to be great democratic citizens. But the fundamental now I'm going to sound a little bit like a preacher. The fundamental issue is it's just not fair. Mm-hmm. We have a every religion would say we have an obligation to care for other people's kids too, not just our own. Of course, we have an obligation to care for our own kids. But uh, this idea that you know kids, if they made a wrong decision on the day that parents were being allocated, they chose the wrong. That somehow that's their fate. That's that is not. Um, that's deeply un-American and deeply immoral. And so, partly what I want to say is if we could get everybody in the country to agree that this is a problem, that the opportunity gap is just fundamentally un-American and very costly to all of us, not just to them, but to all of us, we could figuring out the technical solutions to this is, is the smaller part of the problem. Well, Professor Robert Putnam, thank you so much for coming on today. Great pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. 